10, uh, verse 14, until chapter 11, verse 1. It'll also be on the screen behind me. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we, who are many, are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of con conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Well, let me add my welcome to Sam's. If you are visiting or new, it's great to have you with us. My name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. And we're moving through this second part of the letter of 1 Corinthians over this term, and we come to this chapter this evening. Uh, so let me uh, pray for us, ask that God will help us. Let me welcome those that are online as well. But let's uh, pray and commit this time to the Lord so that we might hear his voice clearly. Now, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the freedom to gather, for the great joy of having fellowship in Christ with brothers and sisters who have come to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And we pray tonight that you might encourage us, that you might stretch us and challenge us as we think about our culture and your call in our life today to be different, to stand out. So, Lord, we ask that you might challenge us afresh tonight, help us to heed your word and to live in the light of it. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our culture constantly asserts our freedom, our right to make our own rules, to go our own way. 
And this is seen in many ways, including in our advertising with fashion companies like General Pants having ads like, we are Gen P, led by none. Of course, there's an inherent irony, isn't there, in some of these ads, given that they're suggesting that you're such an individual expressing your freedom by conforming to what they say is cool and looking like everyone else that goes to General Pants. But nonetheless, there's so many uh, contradictions within our culture. And Dr. Christopher Watkin is a lecturer at Monash University on philosophy and religion, religion and uh, a Christian author of the freshly published book, Biblical Critical Theory, How the Bible's Unfolding Story Makes Sense of Modern Life and Culture. And he argues that the reason our society's insistence on our freedom so often leads to confusion and a selfish individualism is because we've moved the basis of our decision-making paradigm. It used to be that people made decisions over whether something was right or wrong, or at least over what was honourable or shameful, as Asian cultures often stress. But he argues that our culture has moved to a pleasure-pain paradigm. And so we exercise our freedom to maximize our personal pleasure. So if I think something will give me pleasure, I don't care if it's right or wrong, just as long as I get to do it. It doesn't matter whether it impacts somebody else. No one should limit my freedom except for myself if something is going to cause me pain. And so this focus on our rights, our freedoms, is the air that we breathe today in our culture. But as we've reflected on over the last couple of weeks, as we look at these chapters 8 to 10 in particular, we've seen that our society's approach is not how Christians should exercise the true freedom that they have in Christ. And so as we get to chapter 10 and Paul starts to conclude his arguments on this topic, which have stretched for these three chapters, uh, we're given some final thoughts from him as he wraps up his instructions to the Corinthians. And I think it leads to the question for ourselves that we've been reflecting on. How can we use our freedom wisely? How can we use our freedom wisely as we consider the freedom that we have in Christ today if we've placed our trust in the Lord Jesus? Well, three answers to that question tonight for you. The first of them is this. By learning from past mistakes. Paul offers this, that we should learn from past mistakes. So notice again, Uh, What is recorded from verses 6 to 10? Paul writes, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Just prior to what I've read in in verses 1 to 5 at the start of the chapter, Paul is retelling uh, Israel's experiences in a way that's designed to encourage the Corinthians to identify with them. And so he refers to them as their fathers in verse 1. Uh, who, like them, were baptized in verse 2, who have received real spiritual food and drink in verses 3 and 4. But he's doing this trying to create a connection with people long since passed away, with the Corinthians that he's speaking to, because he wants them to hear the warnings that he's now giving them from verse 6. Because Paul is going to use the Israelites' experience 
their idolatry as an example, as a warning for the Corinthians. And he makes that really explicit in verse 6 and verse 11. But in between, in verses 7 to 10 in this first section of the chapter, he provides four examples of how the Israelites of time past failed from which the Corinthians can learn from. And so in verse 7, Paul is referring to the golden calf failure of Exodus 32. That's in verse 6. And then when he speaks in verse 7 about the sexual immorality that accompanied that idolatry, um, he's actually thinking too about the events that then happened in Numbers 25, which he gets to in verse 8. And so this eating and drinking was part of these incidents uh, where Paul sees an obvious connection between uh, the failures of the Israelites and what the Corinthians face in terms of the idolatry that surrounds them that's so often caught up in the having of meals and the eating of food. In verse uh, 8, it's about the, the Israelites' interaction with the Moabites and Midianites and their worshipping of Baal. But prior to their worshipping of Baal, it involved a meal with offerings and praise to Baal. Again, food and idolatry. In verse 9, he's talking about Numbers 21, where the people of Israel were complaining that God wasn't providing them the right food and water and so forth. And so in summary, the evil things which led to so many of the Israelites dying in that generation that came out through the Exodus and then were in the wilderness for 40 years, they all had one thing in common. They had this craving, this desire to fill their appetites how they wanted and it was all connected, sadly, with idolatry. They wanted food, but so often the food that they uh, involved themselves in had worship of other gods. And so it's no surprise that Paul closes this first section of the chapter with a warning to the Corinthians. He says, we'll see those similar situations in the past and their failures. So as you think about yourselves then, don't be overly confident in your wisdom, your ability Notice how he brings it to a point of application for them in verses 11 to 13 and to ourselves by extension. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There's some strong language in this section. Notice here the language of standing and falling. And as Paul uses that language, he's looking forward to the final judgment where people will stand or fall in terms of their response to the giving of his son, the Lord Jesus. But will they be caused to walk away from their faith in the meantime. He's contrasting the judgment where God's judgment fell in the present for the Exodus generation. But he's withholding his judgment at this point, and the Corinthians have a chance to think about the failures of the past as they consider their own position in the present. At least some of the Corinthians that Paul was writing to felt like they had nothing to fear from the practice of their freedoms. They could do whatever they want. They weren't going to fall into mistakes with idols. They weren't going to fall into areas of sexual gratification. And yet Paul spent chapters 5 to 7 talking about the misuse of God's good gift of our sexuality, and he spent chapters 8 to 10 talking about the misuse of their freedom. And so he's wanting to say to them, look, your behavior suggests that you're actually arrogant. 
that you're in danger of falling. But there's also great encouragement at the end of this little rebuke at the end here in verse 13 as well. Did you notice that? The temptations that they face are not new. It's not like they're the first generation that's had to deal with the issue of idolatry or sexual immorality. And so they can learn from the past. But even more important than that is God's faithfulness to his people and his help in the face of temptation. I think it came out in the interview before with Richie. You notice there the tests that we face are not irresistible or insurmountable with God's enabling. And so we're called to resist, to take the way out that God provides in that moment of testing. Not everyone in the wilderness generation failed, even those horrific examples such as the golden calf that Paul can point to. Not all of the Israelites bowed the knee at that point. Not all of them got involved in the revelry and the use of food being offered to idols. And so God always provides a choice for his people. There's always an exit path. God won't allow us to be exposed to temptations that we're unable to bear. He limits what we face. Well, there's a flip side about that that's hard news too, isn't it? That means that we can't claim that we gave way to temptation in any given moment because it was just too much, that God overwhelmed us. No one could possibly stand up. I just had to give in to that temptation. I can't say the devil made me do it. No, I did it. Rather, what we need to do is call on our faithful God and ask him to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from the evil one, as the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. The famous Christian writer Jerry Bridges, who passed away about six years ago now, wrote uh, in one of his books, One day as I was reading 1 John, I realized that my personal life's objective regarding holiness was less than that of the Apostle John's. John was saying, in effect, make it your aim not to sin. And as I thought about this, I realized that deep down in my heart, my aim was not to be tempted or give in to temptation too much. My aim was not to sin very much. But he said, can you imagine a soldier going into a battle with the aim of not getting hit very much. This is not a good strategy. We're in a spiritual battle where God calls us to endure temptation by taking the escape route that he offers. And so we're called to honour our Father. We're called to honour the Lord Jesus who died for our sin. Which brings me to a second answer to this question. How are you and I to use our freedom wisely? Well, not only should we learn from past failures, but by fleeing idolatry in the present via participation, by fleeing idolatry. Notice again what is stated from verse 14 and verses 18 to 20. Paul writes, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that food sacrifice to an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now, that exhortation in verse 14 to flee idolatry is probably, you know, a, a one-phrase summary of the whole of chapters 8 to 10, if you need a takeaway. But the argument that follows in this second section is that participation in pagan meals had 
unintended consequences for Christians. And to help us understand the danger of eating food that's offered to idols, Paul contrasts this with eating in the Lord's Supper. And so he speaks about the Lord's Supper to begin with, and he talks about the single loaf. It speaks of the heart of unity that must mark the life of the church, this community meal that symbolizes the new covenant with God established through Christ's death and his resurrection. But then in verse 16, notice he says that communion involves participation in the blood and body of Christ. It does so by faith. He's saying that there is something spiritual happening at that point as we partake. It's not just a physical thing that I eat a piece of bread or drink the juice. There is a spiritual participation as the person is involved in the meal. And so likewise, he wants to argue in contrast that participation in a cultic pagan meal makes you participants with demons. Because although an idol is nothing, as you already said in chapter 8, and he says again in this chapter, what sits behind it is a spiritual power that is demonic. And so it seems that this spiritual or, if you like, vertical aspect had been ignored or overlooked by the Corinthians as they thought about their freedom to engage in all the idolatrous activities around them. No doubt there was a sense of fellowship for them to be involved. It was one of the key things in the life of Corinth, as we understand it, to be invited to various meals. It helped your social standing. It helped you network, as it does so often in many societies. And so it was a great thing to be invited, be included by a host. But so often when you're at the meal, the host would give thanks for the meal and would praise the God who the meal was honouring, the food that was being provided for. And Paul's argument is that where God is or idols or false gods are, which are always thanked, then the partnership is not just with the people or the connections that you have, but it's also with either the true God or with the demonic. If all those who join in the Lord's Supper expressing their unity as one body, then those who share in the food often to pagan idols become one with them. So although he'd argued earlier in chapter 8 that idols are not real gods and that idol food is not contaminated, you can eat that, and we're going to see that argument again at the end of this chapter, there's a little bit more to consider. Participation was still potentially an idolatrous act of worship. Now that would have come as a surprise to most of the Corinthians as we understand it. They thought they were just uh, free to do anything that they would never need to be worried about being guilty of idolatry. And I think that's an important warning for us too, because I think as Christians today, we think, oh, no, you know, we worship the one true God. If you're someone here tonight that's placed their faith in Jesus, you would see yourself as a worshipper of God, not as an idolater. But we are in a culture that is just swimming in idolatry. It's just different forms today. And so it's important for us to realize that we're not innocent just because we don't think our actions are a participation in idolatry. It's more subtle than that at times. Tim Keller writes in his book, Counterfeit Gods, when most people think of idols, they have in mind literal statues. And yet while traditional idol worship still occurs in many places of the world, internal idol worship within the heart is universal. The human heart is an idol factory, he writes. 
In Ezekiel 14, verse 3, God says about the elders of Israel, these men have set up idols in their hearts. But like us, the elders must have responded to the charge, idols? What idols? You know, I don't see any idols. What is he talking about? God's saying that the human heart can take things, even good things, like a successful career or love or material possessions or even family, and then turn them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think that those things are the, are the ones that will bring us significance, that it's in those that we'll find security and safety and fulfillment. As Keller summarizes in his definition, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, to your meaning in life, to your identity, then it's an idol. And there are not just those personal idols. There's the idol of our Western culture, the idols of individual freedom, self-discovery, personal affluence, fulfillment, and we might go on. And so as Paul applies this section in verse 22, as he gets to the end of this second section, he says believers should not be provoking God to jealousy by their idolatrous activities. Do we really want to have a foot in both camps, Paul is saying? Do we really want to claim to follow God and then place our heart somewhere else? But then how do we identify these things in our lives? It's all very well to understand that principle. How do we know when we're shifting our happiness or our identity, our meaning away from trusting God and putting it onto something else, creating an idol? Well, Keller suggests four tests. Let me summarize them for you. The first thing is we need to consider our thought life, what we dwell on. What do you enjoy daydreaming about? Career advancement, perhaps that next holiday, um, that dream home or car, that relationship with a particular person. If you run to those things habitually because it's in those things that you get excitement or joy or comfort or meaning to get you through the week, then you've shifted the focus. You've discovered an idol in your life at that point. Secondly, we need to look at how we spend our money. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The mark of an idol is that we spend too much money on it. We don't even have to think about it. Our money runs to that. Most of us tend to overspend on our clothing or our children or our homes. You add to the list. But if we truly loved God, then we would give our money towards gospel ministry. We would give it towards those on the margins of society that God has a heart for. We would have God's heart for the lost and the poor. Or thirdly, we can discern idols by looking at our prayer life. What is it that you're praying for? You're praying that that promotion at work will happen? Is that the number one thing that God's interested in for you? Or what happens if you have unanswered prayers or frustrated hopes? Do you trust that God knows best for your life? You continue to trust him each day and each week following if he says no or wait? 
Or do you feel, do you sense there's this building resentment within you? Because God is not delivering what I want. Or this despair, this hopelessness. That these are the things that I think will really bring me happiness, and God is just not providing those. Well, if so, we may have found our secret idol. And finally, we can look at our most uncontrolled emotions. Look for your idols, Keller says, at the bottom of your most painful emotions, especially those that drive you to do things that you know are wrong. What could lead you to do things that you know are wrong? except that that has got a hold on your heart. And that brings me to a third and a final answer to this question of using our freedom. How do we use our freedom wisely? By pursuing what is beneficial. By pursuing what is beneficial. So notice again what Paul asserts from verses 23 to 27. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything. Everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 24 verse 1. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. Now notice here uh, a repeat of what we heard back in chapter 8. We're not to think of ourselves and our freedoms but to serve others with our choices. In the previous two sections of this chapter, Paul is focused really on the threat to our own spiritual health. Now in this final section, he's focusing on our threat to the spiritual health of others. He shifts his focus. And he quotes the Corinthian slogan twice, did you notice? Their slogan is, I have the right to do anything. Yes, that's correct, said Paul, but... And so he offers a qualifier each time. And the second time, that word constructive is actually probably better translated edifies or builds up. And that's such a key theme through this section of 1 Corinthians. What is it that will build up others? Is that how I'm choosing, rather than making choices that impact others negatively? And Paul offers two examples, doesn't he, there in verses 25 to 27. One, buying meat in the market, which was commonplace for the Corinthians and they know most of it's offered to idols. What do you do then? Or you're invited by a non-believer to have a meal with them at their house, and they're probably going to offer you food that, again, has been put before idols. Well, he says, don't ask questions. Feel free to engage so that you might have opportunity to live and to share with others. Don't raise issues of conscience. Straightforward at that point. But what if they raise the issue? Verse 28. If someone else raises the issue, then suddenly things change. You're to avoid eating so that your behavior wouldn't be seen to support idolatry. As soon as that person says, oh, this meat that I'm about to give you, I offered that to an idol earlier, I hope that's okay. Well, at that point, if you say, oh, yeah, that's not a problem, I'm going to eat this, then you're either indicating to that person, well, your own faith doesn't really matter to you, you'll bend on this, or perhaps that an idol is nothing and so they can feel free to continue in their practices which you think are so misleading and taking them away from the true God. So at that point, suddenly you constrain your freedom because it's been raised. This constraint of our freedoms for another person's conscience, not for your own, is so very important to Paul so that the gospel is not maligned. 
But doesn't that run counter to everything in our culture? Is there anything that somebody could say to you as you're about to do something you enjoy that would make you immediately restrain from doing that? In his book, How to Find Yourself, Why Looking Inward is Not the Answer, Australian author Brian Rosner points out that we can be thankful for the increasing freedom that we have to make choices in how we live. Absolutely. But, he says, the you-do-you way of doing identity comes at an enormous cost. Rosner argues that we can't define our identity just by looking within because we're social beings that need to connect to others. We need to consider other people. We can't be so selfish. But he goes on to say there's even more to our identity than being part of a community. I submit that we not only need to look around us, but we also need to look upward. See, the human desire to look up, to worship, is central to who we are as those made in God's image. And while sin has often distorted that spiritual dimension for many people in our society so that they end up worshipping false gods, Raising our gaze to the true God and following his instructions is absolutely central to who we are if we're a Christian. We're not to be drawn away to the idols of our age. And these horizontal impacts on other and vertical dimensions of our choices is what Paul wants to conclude this whole three chapters on from verse 31 to the end. Notice how he finishes up his arguments. So, Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. The main point in this final section is that in all situations, we must act in ways that promote the gospel rather than malign the gospel and threaten the salvation of others because that is what brings glory to God. That is the link in this final passage. How is God glorified? Do all things to the glory of God. What's that? Do everything so that we won't confuse fellow believers and so that we won't malign the gospel and be a threat to non-believers hearing the truth of God's love for them in Christ. We need to do all things so that we promote the gospel and bring glory to God. We're not to be a stumbling block. We're not to confuse others with our rash use of our freedom. Uh, my wife, uh, Christine, can remember being horrified as a young girl when she was part of a beach mission team down at Lake Tabari on the south coast. Her parents were on the team. She was included as one of the team kids. And she walked around the corner of the tent one day on beach mission, and there was the team leader of the beach mission smoking behind the tents. And she was shocked uh, because of her young age and her young faith and because of the upbringing of you know, her family and those around her, you know, Christians didn't do these things, you shouldn't be smoking, drinking, so on. And so, you know, is this guy really a believer even? You know, how can he be leading the team? What's happening here? It was very confusing. Now, I can say that she thinks, as I do, more um, clearly about those issues. Um, there's nothing in the Bible about smoking, obviously, and that's something he was free to do. But he was exercising his freedom in a way that impacted lots of young believers on the team. 
created a lot of confusion and uncertainty about his leadership from that point. We have to be so careful about what we do in front of others so that we don't point them away from Christ rather than to Jesus. And finally, notice that this principle applies to our behavior before everyone. It's not just fellow believers in the church, but also notice non-believing Jews and Greeks. That's the entire world population. Uh, that was the way they did it in quite a binary description. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. So Paul's referring to anyone, whether in the church or outside of the church, you need to be careful in your actions as a believer before them so that you honor Christ and not malign the gospel. And Paul says all of this is not because he's requiring this, but because this was Christ's example to us. This is what God requires of us. And Paul says, follow me as I'm imitating the Lord Jesus. Jesus did everything, including the sacrifice of his own life for our sin, for the benefit of others, for the salvation of others. Now, he could do those things perfectly as the eternal son of God, but we're called to imitate our saviour, to strive to live in a way that is concerned for the needs of others, not just our own. Our overriding concern shouldn't be about our freedom and our rights. That's everything that our culture wants to talk about these days. Don't constrain yourself. But the implications for a believer is that we do. We give up our freedom because we are slaves to Christ. We want to serve him. And therefore, it's all about God's glory. And what brings him glory is building up other believers and holding out the gospel of life in an unimpeded way. Focusing on the salvation of others for God's glory. That's how we express our freedom wisely. Let me pray for us to that end. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the clarity of the Apostle Paul to navigate tricky things in the, in the first century for the Corinthians, which are just as difficult for us often today in a world swimming with idols. For indeed, everything that takes the focus of a person's life, their heart, is their idol. And so we're surrounded by things, for our hearts are idol factories. If we do not serve you, the one true and living God, then we will find something to serve. So Lord, help us to see that as we live to encourage our brothers and sisters, as we seek to hold out your gospel to those around us, that you might help us to live in a way that is clear. Help us to be in the world, but not of the world to be clearly those who are yours. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.